Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. Today, we are going to take a little bit deeper dive into Reed's brain and take a look at some of the things that are floating around in there, more specifically to some of the advice that people often ask for regarding OTS or officer training school. And so today we're going to get Reed's stuck on an elevator speech about OTS. Yeah, this is a little bit more in depth. I guess we should explain the elevator speech. I think most people should know what that is, right? You happen to step on an elevator and just right before the doors close, here comes your boss's boss's boss. They look down at you and say something to the effect of, hi, who are you? What do you do here? This is your opportunity, right? To sell that thing you're working on to convince the higher ups of the value of your organization. And you've got those, you know, that 30 second pithy speech this is a little bit more in-depth than that, but not quite. Yeah, just to re-emphasize that every officer should have a good 30-second to 60-second elevator speech on the project that they are currently working on or something that they want to work on so that in the event that you get the boss's ear for those 30 to 60 seconds, you can make your pitch, convince uh, he or she to throw their support behind you and help you get the work done. But this is going to be more than just a 30 to 60 second elevator speech. So this is the speech that you should have prepared in the event that you get stuck on the elevator with your boss's boss's boss. Exactly. Yeah, very often. And this has been something I've truly enjoyed. But once people have identified that I'm an OTS, you know, former OTS instructor, the selected members of the enlisted corps or the people with friends that have been selected, they tend to just kind of show up randomly and would like advice. And it's something I'm more than happy to do. It happened just this week. Had a random opportunity to sit down and give someone some advice and, and give them my contact info. More than happy to share uh, to help set these folks up for success. So here's it happens often enough that I thought there might be some value in putting it down on paper, kind of thinking about it deeply. That's what we're going to go over today. And, and Colin, feel free to chime in anything you think of as we go along. You know, I'm certain some of these things will apply to the students that are preparing for field training or to start their ROTC experience as well. Well, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that you are drawing that correlation. But at the same time, don't forget, I did not go through OTS. So I'm going to be learning along with the audience here about how OTS works. So thanks in advance and forgive me in advance as I you know, ask a lot of questions about how OTS works. Sure, absolutely. All right, so the first thing whenever anyone asks, and typically the questions come something like, what's the single most important piece of advice 
okay, let's boil down, you know, a life-changing opportunity and experience into a sentence. But the thing I think of most often when that question comes is be ready and humble enough to accept the training. And what, what am I talking about there? The, the students that struggle and the ones irrespective of their abilities or talents, the ones that are struggling in training tend to bring an attitude that they don't need to be there or they don't have anything to learn, especially in specific areas. As an example, there's a graded briefing as part of the curriculum. And we have some people come in that briefing, the ability to stand in front of a group of people, deliver critical information, often in a time-compressed situation, communicate that clearly and effectively, is something they've been doing for years. And it's really fascinating to watch those that come in thinking, I've got this because I've been doing this for years. I'm fine. I don't have to worry about it. And struggle even though they're clearly talented and clearly experienced versus those that are also clearly talented and experienced, but come in and absolutely crush the event. And the difference there is the humbleness, the willingness to learn the, those that take the opportunity to accept training. It portends to a humbleness, a humility, a, a perspective that I have something still to get out of this. And I don't think that's just essential for training success. I think that's essential for career success. What are your thoughts on that? This, this idea of humility and a willingness to learn. So first of all, I, I want to define some things before we get to that point. Is that okay? Sure. So accepting the training, Reed, please describe for me because I honestly don't know. What do you mean by training? I don't, I don't know what OTS training is like. So help me understand that. Sure. All right. And this is where the scientist engineer in me desperately wants a whiteboard that I can share with our audience, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my hands thinking, oh dear, I, I don't have a whiteboard. That's also an Intel officer thing, right? I, I need to have my whiteboard markers ready. So the way I look at training, the way I would describe it to my students is think of where you are right now and think of what you envision your right and left limits to be, right? So you have a capacity to do something, right? To be someone. Again, Colin's laughing because I'm literally on the screen. Like, yeah, you're watching me. Try yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm watching. Hands go, yeah. hands go up. So left and right. <laughs> training, the purpose of training is to expand those right and left limits. And often, it, if I'm doing my job right, I am pushing those right and left limits beyond what you imagined your capacity could be. That is my purpose and intent as someone who is involved in training. I have to do that using a variety of mechanisms, primarily like some sort of verbal or written instruction, some sort of demonstration, and then some sort of, not test, but where you actually have to put in some work, a demonstration on your behalf. So I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to show you how to do it, and then I'm going to expect you to perform it uh, so that when I say training, that's what I'm talking about. So let's take drill. If you are starting from zero, you've seen people marching before, maybe you can spell the word, but you don't know how to do it. What is going to happen? A military training instructor is going to talk to you about what drill is, what the purpose and intent is. They are going to demonstrate it for you, and then they are going to say, okay, it's your turn, perform. 
And when you fall short of the expectation, they will perform instruction to help you get right. And then they will expect you to perform. And this will be continued. This cycle will be repeated over and over until your right and left limits, your capacity to drill increases. Then we will increase stress. We will increase the expectation. We will increase the self-autonomy, again, to push those right and left limits. So when I say accept the training, I want that person to come with a level of humility that recognizes that what they think is their ability to do something is not, one, adequate, and two, is not all that there is. There is more. I have seen incredibly talented individuals come and get incredibly more talented. I've also seen people come with great talents and abilities who don't grow, who stagnate, and I don't need those kind of people. I need someone who's willing to learn. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about by accepting the training. Yeah, those are some really interesting ideas there. I also like to define training as a systematic process for achieving some sort of future goal or adaptation or skill. One of the easiest ways for me to define it is in the context of strength training. All right. So Reed, you and I have worked together on barbell strength training and that process was very clearly outlined. We understood where you were and then where you wanted to be. So you start with a 135 pound deadlift, right? But over the process of time and purposely subjecting yourself to not only the movement, the exercise itself, but the consistent coaching and instruction from someone who knows more than you, that enables you to get from a 135 deadlift to a 185 to 225 to 75 and eventually we got your deadlift up to 320 you know, for was that a three rep max did you pull that for three reps i did yep that was awesome and the way that it happened is that you accepted the training you accepted the process you came into it recognizing that there was something that you wanted to achieve but you didn't know how and so you, you sought out uh, some expertise from me and you humbly put in the work. You didn't come to me and say, hey, I have this goal in mind and this is how I want to do it. Make, make it work for me. But no, it was, hey, I have this goal in mind. Can you help me get to it? And so the same needs to be true in the context of officer training school or any other professional development training. You need to come in, maybe you already have that goal in mind, and that's fine. You come in with that goal and you say, this is what I hope to achieve. I want to be this kind of person. I want to understand this sort of material. I want to be proficient in this type of skill, but I don't have all the answers. I need someone who understands that process better, that outcome better, and allow them to teach you how to get there. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons this idea definitely bubbles up to the top for me is a significant portion of my students were prior enlisted. And so let's take your strength training analogy one step further. Imagine if I had been strength training for eight years longer 
than you had been strength training yet was coming to you for advice for training coaching uh, it it requires a little bit extra humility to not dismiss my experience not to put it away but to believe that there is still something you can teach me and that's a little bit more unique aspect of, of officer training school, I think, is the number of enlisted members we get. And that leads me right into my second point. Bring everything that you have, your hard-won and valued experience, and use that to teach those around you when you're in training. And that goes for my civilian applicants as well as for my enlisted applicants. They all have something to offer. We need that diversity of experience. You know, I had students that had been highly skilled professionals in their civilian world, and they get to OTS and they kind of just dismiss their entire experience. And later on, we find they've got this skill that they developed over years that's incredibly applicable to what we're doing. And for some reason, they think, well, I wasn't sure if I needed to, to use that here because I, I, you know, I don't have military experience. And to that, I would always say, whatever experience you have, bring it. We need that depth of experience. So Reed, would you, would you give us an example? Yeah. A lot of people in civilian worlds have a lot of management experience. I'm sure at some point, maybe we'll talk about the difference between management and leading, but management experience is management experience. If you understand how to get people to get something done and manage the situation, timing, logistics, those are valuable skills. There is not a military way that is mandated when it comes to making sure people get something done on time. Yet that was something that very often my non-prior enlisted students, you know, those with zero military experience felt that they would be given some sort of checklist to follow or something, you know, this is how the Air Force does this. Yeah, so maybe a, a good hypothetical here is that you've got that high-speed high school senior who gets hired at a grocery store or a Walmart or something like that, who maybe because the, the manager there sees potential or maybe just out of necessity gets promoted into higher levels of leadership within that organization at that story and therefore becomes more familiar with the process of managing people and time and inventory and logistics and that sort of stuff. And to your point, maybe that when that individual shows up at officer training school, they think there's no similarity between Walmart and what we're doing here. But what you're saying is that is not the case at all. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. A variety of situations. We had people from fairly significant CEOs of companies to high tech type work and and everything in between and and yes bring that experience whatever it is you have something of value and it was fascinating to watch those that could take their prior experience whatever it was and really turn it into a force multiplier for what we were trying to do at the time so whatever it is bring it so it, it's a little bit of a contrast to that first statement be humble and accept the training accept that you have something to learn but also not being afraid to employ the tools that you've already developed over time. Yeah, that is such an interesting dichotomy. 
And if any of you are familiar with the dichotomy of leadership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, that that fits right in line with what they talk about all the time is the military does not live in the extremes, but lives within this balance of various seemingly contradictory dichotomies where on the one hand we need that humility, but at the same time we need that strong confidence in your own abilities, humility and a willingness to learn and grow and accept feedback and training from other individuals, but at the same time, being confident enough in your own abilities to sometimes provide feedback, provide training, provide the information that others need in order to be successful. It's an interesting dichotomy there. And I'm glad that you brought those up. Speaking of dichotomy, that moves me to my third point. Perfect segue there. I'll have 10 points for a, uh, a good transition. It's almost like we planned it. Exactly. So OTS is an individual assessment. You are being graded as an individual, but you will not be able to succeed alone. So again, right, what do you mean? I'm being graded as an individual, but I can't do this by myself. You will not make it in the Air Force by yourself. Absolutely not. You cannot get through OTS on your own. If you're struggling to get, a, get along with somebody, you can't write that off. You can't just mail it in and say, I'm just not going to deal with it. They are part of you and your Air Force now. So you need to face that fact and get through it. You need to figure it out. The mission of your airmen are more important than some interpersonal drama between you and someone you're struggling to get along with. And if you try to get through training on your own, you will fail. So some of the biggest failures I saw were people who were unwilling to accept assistance or help when they were clearly struggling. No, I got this. I got this. I got this. Uh, you probably don't. You probably don't. And you can't get through the training by yourself. Again, right? A little bit of a dichotomy. This, it's an individual assessment. I'm grading you as an individual, but you will succeed and fail as a group. Now, if you can, without revealing any personal identifying information, names or places or dates or anything like that. Can you give us an example of someone who tried to go it alone and failed? Sure. So I had a student who was struggling academically. So the academics of OTS have taken various shapes and forms, but as I understand, there are still a significant portion of the program, especially early, that's heavily focused on academics. And we're talking, you know, study this information, be presented with and pass an academic exam, very similar to anything, you know, if you filled out bubble sheets before, you can, you filled out bubble sheets in the Air Force, right? It's a it, pretty similar type environment. Is this like Air Force specific information? Like a variety of things. So yes, there's a little bit of locations history. of major commands and uh, it's a deeper than that. It's much more application based. So it okay. would be what major command would be in charge of uh, our nuclear enterprise. And you would need to have put enough things together to put Global Strike Command as that entity. Also, a lot of focus on leadership, on team building. A lot of the lessons that we give there, same lessons that you give in ROTC. It's exact same material. Instead of 
rote regurgitation. They're much more application-based. So this is what's going on in the situation. Why would this tool be inappropriate? You're going to have to remember, you know, that third slide on why transactional leadership isn't going to work for this situation. So a little bit more in depth, but completely attainable. It's, it's more of assessment of your ability to manage time and grasp the material at the level required to apply it for the rest of the program. Because that's kind of how it's set up, right? Do a bunch of academics up, up front. Okay, now let's apply it. Let's put it in practice. And if you can't connect what we're doing in the classroom to what we're doing out in the field, that's a problem. If anyone has passed college, they can pass these academics if they work as a group. So that, that was the key. This member was struggling with the academics. And the group was doing everything they could to offer their assistance, to do group study, to do one-on-one -on -one mentoring, tutoring, whatever it was. And um, in addition to the, the regular type testing academics, there are papers to write, there are briefings to give, but we kind of put that all, anything kind of happening in the classroom, we roll up as academics. And I had numerous people from the flight come to me and say, we don't know how to help so-and-so. We know they're struggling. We know they failed the last measure. We know they only have one fail left. We're offering everything we know how to do, but they just won't. They just kind of lock themselves away and we're worried. We don't think they're going to get there. And you talk to the member and they said, I have to do this on my own. And I would counsel them. I understand this is an individual event, right? Like no one's going to be sitting next to you as you fill out this exam or do that brief. However, don't you think that all these people who have passed might have something to offer you who has failed? And it was a, their lack of ability to connect those two things that a little bit of a red flag for me. So when they failed out, it was no surprise. And I was asked questions about, you know, should we find ways to retain this member? And that was something I had to point out to senior leadership. This person did not demonstrate the ability to look to others as a source that they could draw from. And uh, that's something I think we need. I don't think we need, I absolutely know we need as members in the profession of arms. That's really interesting. Was that a singular event or was this something that you saw on a regular basis over your, your two, three years, two years? Yeah, I was an instructor for two years. You're two years an instructor. Did you see that? happen more than once or was that a singular event the one i'm thinking of in particular was singular simply because of its degree so i saw that happen on much smaller levels but overwhelmingly the students figured it out you know i would have that counseling session with them and say hey i've got 15 people who sleep eat breathe run live with you every day who've passed this measure and they're trying to offer you help Mm -hmm. And they, they, you'd see the light bulb go on. Oh, I can't do this by myself. Yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they would get that help in whatever form they needed it in. They'd turn that corner and then they'd get to write. And later on, they'd tell me, oh, that was transformative. You know, I was able to learn how to rely on people. Yeah. So it was the matter of degree, which made this experience quite singular. Just simply could not turn that corner, could not get them to understand that it is okay and essential and required to look to others. Because I think as leaders, 
yes, we are talented and skilled, but we do not have all the answers. Overwhelmingly, we do not have the answers. A leader is able to find those who do and get those people to get the job done. I had one student in particular, this was very telling. I could tell was one who was going to do whatever it took to get the job done, but thought that it was 100% on them. It was 100% their responsibility to get this thing done. And so I put them in a position of, of really important leadership over virtually the entire cadet wing. So here's 250 people that this person's in charge of. And the responsibilities of someone at that level are, are simply too much for one person. If they think, if they have that attitude, if they have that attitude of, oh, I've, I've got to do this. I did that on purpose. I did that on purpose so that they would fail because of capacity, right? Sure enough, halfway through the week, person came to me, sir, I can't do this. They're in tears, struggling. And it finally sunk in. Exactly. You, you can't. But there's like 250 people here. Do you think maybe 10 of them together could? We were able to get them to turn that corner. Transformative experience. You know, to, to help them see how and when. And, and the, the statement to me was, I just thought officers were better. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the statement from this student was, I just thought they were better, faster, stronger, taller, prettier, whatever you want to say. They, they just thought they were more. And so that's what they thought officer training school was going to be, is teach me how to do more. Wow, that, that's so fascinating. I have to ask, was this individual a prior? They were, with significant experience. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear them say something like that, that officers are, are more, that they're better, that they're more capable, which maybe in some circumstances that, that's true certainly not in every circumstance. And I wouldn't say that's true collectively across the board. Now that officers are, are not more or better, they, they just have a different role. And that's exactly the way I would tell them that. I would say, we are not more, we are different. The responsibilities are different. It is different. And that was something a lot of conversation I had with a lot of my prior enlisted students is bring all your experience, knowledge, capabilities, talents, abilities, but recognize that being an officer is different. It is, it's not more, it's different. And, and those light bulb moments when they figured that out and could finally see it were really rewarding to see because that's when they were able to use all the tools we've been talking about and get amazing things done. And then it's like seeing all the pieces come together and the puzzle completes itself. I'm like, oh, I finally see what, what they've been trying to teach. It's like when you get to the, the last few cards in the game of Solitaire way back in Windows 95 and you'd move that last card and then the whole thing just starts finishing itself. <laughs> yep, yeah, it's brilliant. So yeah, that, that was... Uh, that's, that's my story about being an individual assessment that you can't do by yourself. That is a really uh, interesting story. And in the mouth of two or three, shall all things be established? I have a, a similar story that I'd like to share. 
I recently had a conversation with one of my cadets about similar issues, uh, about capacity, about getting things done. And this particular cadet, extremely capable, very talented, put this individual in any position and they are going to succeed. That's just the, the kind of person that they are. And so similar to your your story, had to move this uh, individual into a position of responsibility where you just cannot do it all by yourself. So the goal here was to help this cadet learn delegation to force the issue to accept the training, if you will. And the, they came into my office not too long ago and came in and I just, you know, checking in with them. How are things going, sir? This, <laughs> the, the, you could, I, I could see it in their face. Just the, that deer in the headlights. Holy crap. How do I, how do I do this? And I said, you don't, you don't do it. That's the point is that you need to utilize all the resources, including the people that are available to you. As General Goldfein puts it, you need to delegate whatever the task is as far down as you feel comfortable and then go one level more. So get outside of your comfort zone with delegation because that is where growth happens. The growth is going to happen for you and the growth is also going to happen for that person that you have delegated the task to. Now, uh, we need to emphasize the point that delegation is not the same thing as abdication that you are not you are not giving up your authority but you are you are empowering that individual to act on your behalf you are still responsible in that position for the success or failure of the mission but the only way that you will accomplish the mission is by delegating it outside of yourself because you just don't have the capacity to accomplish it on your own. The Air Force is too big for any one person. And that's such a fascinating dichotomy as as you explained it earlier, that the Air Force is on active duty is an individual assessment, right? You know, you get assessed individually through your OPR through your decorations, through your promotion recommendations, all these different things are individual. However, you can't get a good OPR. You can't get a decoration. You can't get a good promotion recommendation without the help of other people. Because if you're trying to do it on your own, the mission fails and then you don't succeed. You don't get those things. And so such a fascinating discussion there about individualism versus uh, working with teams, how both are required, but never in, at an extreme. Yeah, not, not, never to the exclusion of the other. Uh, now, just a couple things. We'll have two that are a little bit lighter, you know, kind of logistical things. I always give advice to mentally prepare that OTS will be like a deployment. And what do I mean by that? It will take virtually every waking moment of your time. 
you aren't going to have a whole lot of capacity to deal with things at home. And so if you can prepare mentally to be completely out of communication for two months, that'll probably be the best. I recognize people have families, children. I came when I went through OTS, I had two of my three children and my wife and it was good for me to take care of as much as I could beforehand so that I didn't have to worry about it during training. And that's just kind of a a thing to think about, right? You're going to be task saturated. You're going to have a lot to do. Even when you're not in class actively being trained, from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed, you have plenty to do, more than enough for a normal person. And so if you can take care of some of that stuff ahead of time, that will just be to your favor. Where we recognize that you're human beings, you know, stuff happens, stuff crops up, staff's going to help you get through those things. But if you can do as much as possible before you leave, uh, that'll be to your benefit. Yeah, Reed, if you don't mind, I'm sure that we'll get into the specifics of how OTS operates, but just briefly describe what the day-to-day is like and so that we can better understand what that task saturation looks like. Sure. So it hasn't changed a whole lot since I went through as a student. And then as I was a, as an instructor, it, it changed a little bit. But bottom line, you're going to be waking up at 0430 Monday through Saturday. And you begin training immediately. Sometimes you have 15 minutes. Sometimes you have 30 minutes to be to your first training event. But you wake up at 0430 and within minutes, I expect that accountability has been performed. Accountability means every single person has been accounted for and their presence at training has been reported up the chain of command so that all staff are aware that we have all souls on board. Everybody that went to bed last night is here in the morning and we're ready to go. So yeah, within five minutes, if I don't have accountability of the entire cadet wing, something's broken. So you got to start immediately. You know, there's no like this gradual wake up, look at my phone for 20 minutes, roll into shower and breakfast. Absolutely not. Training begins at 0430 and your day is completely scheduled in five minute intervals until we are done with dinner, which is usually at about 1800. So for the next 14 hours, I own every five minutes of your time. And it's every waking minute is an opportunity for me to train you. So everything you do, let's talk lunch. You're going to show up. There's a very prescriptive way that you will enter the dining facility. There are procedures that you will follow. And if you fail to follow them, I will instruct you. We're talking as you walk through to get your food. There's a very prescribed way to do that. If you fail to do that appropriately, I will instruct you until you get it right. So even a simple act of picking up a salad to putting it on your tray is a training opportunity. So if you think about your day in five-minute intervals as something that someone is looking as, a, as an opportunity to, to train, your day gets really full really quickly. Yeah, I mean, not even lawyers look at their days at, in five-minute intervals. They only bill in 15-minute intervals. So that's really taking that to the next level there. Yeah. So let's say uh, we'll we'll go through like an academic day with some field exercises in the evening. So you'll wake up 0430. 
I expect you to be at breakfast at zero five. And then after breakfast, you're going to have maybe 30 minutes to get back to your dorm, get dressed, ready for the day, get back to the academic building with all materials, dress, press, ready to go. And then you're going to be in the classroom at 0630. We'll do classroom activities till lunch. And then you'll have lunch. Again, very, you know, I say have lunch. I have an hour sometimes to get 900 people through a dining facility. So when I say you have 10 minutes to eat, I'm not exaggerating. Like get in, get fed, get out. We we got stuff to do. Uh, And then place your academic material in your flight room. And then you need to march half a mile across the campus to this location. And if you're late, that's very bad. Don't be late. And then we'll perform outdoor activities you know, so it's it's very tightly regimented. Yeah, because if if you're late, you know, those five minute blocks get pushed or missed altogether. And if if every five minutes is a training opportunity, that's missed training. That's missed objectives. That's a missed opportunity for growth and development. Yep, and even more important, a missed opportunity to accomplish all the training objectives required for graduation. That's very bad. You know, I only have two months. I have a lot to get done in two months. So we'll go back to dinner and then it's like, oh, by the way, you have that test on Friday. Yeah. And we spent how long? Four or five hours in the classroom today. So you better be ready. So you've spent four or five hours in the classroom. You're the one at at college. If you spend five hours in the classroom, how much time should you expect to spend out of the classroom mastering that material for future? At least 10 to 15. Yeah. Good thing you only have about four before bed. So uh, lights out uh, for me as a student was 2,300 hours. During my time, we pushed that to 2,200 hours just to give the students more sleep. It's because they will take every second. Again, right? Very compressed. So you have to clean your dorm room, make sure it's presentable, always in inspection. You know, have to do laundry. You have to work on your assignments. You have to study. You have to do cables on your uniforms. You got to make sure your closet's ready to go for inspection. And you have four hours after dinner before bed. And so that's what I mean. If you prepare for this experience like you're going to be deployed, mom, dad, husband, wife, kids, I'm not going to be able to call you. It's not because we're horrible, heartless people. It's because we are absolutely tasking you to the point that that five minutes on the phone might not happen because you've got a student meeting with other student leaders so you can get this thing done because, hey, you're struggling with briefing. So you're going to go back to your flight room and practice and watch, you know, have people record you and point out the problems. All You know, it's busy. So we just tell the students, hey, you're not going to be in touch because you're too busy. So that's what I mean by, you know, take care as much as possible and kind of prepare for the fact like you're going to be gone. Yeah, I mean, that's really important to understand how a lot of this military training operates. It's not that we are, like you said, it's not that we're trying to be slave drivers or over the top, trying to do more than necessary. In fact, the current construct of officer training school, as I understand it from the way that you've explained it to me, is hitting the absolute very bare minimum of the academics and field activities required in order to produce an officer that is able to succeed in the Air Force. And so 
if you take away from that even further, you are now below the minimum. If you are spending time on things that don't matter, and I mean, that doesn't that sounds wrong because contacting family, maintaining those connections and relationships is important. But for the two month period required in order to turn you into an officer, you need to prioritize your training. You need to again accept the training and set the expectation for your family that they need to let you prioritize the training over the constant contact and everyday updates on how things are going. Yeah. And training ebbs and flows, right? At some points, it's incredibly concentrated and very busy. And as the program progresses, that time requirement decreases, right? Academics, uh, while I was instructing there, it was the first three weeks. So for those first three weeks, you are busy. But as soon as academics are out of the way, it's more experiential. It backs off a little bit. So it does, you know, you will be able to contact them. It's not like I'm forbidding it, but you're going to be busy. No, I think it just emphasizes the point that not only do people who are interested in being an officer need to mentally prepare for OTS, but they need, they need to mentally prepare for the, for the lifestyle. They need to prepare for the career. And it's not just you. You need to prepare your family too. You need to prepare your friends. You need anybody who you care about, who is a stakeholder in your life. You need to prepare them and help them to better understand how this lifestyle, how this career operates. And shameless plug, that's why we're doing this podcast and you should share it with them, right? So that you can help them be better educated on how all of these things work and what their role is, how they can support you or other people that they care about that are trying to pursue a career as officer in the Air Force. Exactly. One way I'd like to look at the way I spend my time, and I'm not unique in this and I can't remember where I read it, but imagine you have a bank account and this is where you put your time. And sometimes bank accounts are getting bigger. You're putting deposits in those accounts. And other times you're withdrawing from those accounts and they're getting smaller. And I think about my time. I think about myself as an Air Force person. I think of myself as a husband. I think of myself as a father and someone of faith, et cetera. And sometimes I'm able to put deposits in those buckets, if you will, right? I'm able to invest my time with my family because I know that at some point, I'm going to be required to make a withdrawal and put that time into one of my other buckets. And so if you can tell your family ahead of time, spend a lot of time with them, focus on being present so that when you're at OTS, you're able to withdraw from that family time bucket and move it somewhere else and they, they understand how that works, I think you're going to be more successful. Yeah. And let's be honest, just like not everybody is cut out for being an officer in the Air Force. Not every family is cut out for supporting an officer in the Air Force. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some families just need to be together all the time. And that's great. There's, again, nothing wrong with that. And so taking care of as much of this ahead of time, setting those expectations ahead of time is, is really quite critical so that everybody that is involved can be open and honest 
and provide their full 100% support and effort in the goal of helping that individual become and succeed as an officer in the Air Force. Yeah, absolutely. That's another good segue. It's like you practice these transitions, you know, moving between key points, Colin. Sorry, for our listeners, that's an, an air education and training command requirement that you're able to effectively transition between main points of instruction. And it's something we endlessly mock, even though we recognize it's utility. All right. So like everything in AETC. <laughs> yes. Air education training command. It all starts there. All right. This is the last one. And, and I think it's, I think it's really important. I need you to define your why. Why are you here? Why are you doing this? Are you doing this because your partner, parent, some leader asked you to, or is this somehow for you? And I need you to do this before you get to training, before you become an officer, before you've you know, applied. I think it's really important for someone to run through this experience. And why do I say that? You're going to be stressed. You're going to be tired. You're going to be exhausted, tested and tried in ways that you have not experienced or thought of. And if you don't know what your why is, that's when you're going to start asking. As you, you know, lie in bed at 2,300 hours, still wired from your incredibly long and exhausting day, your heart's been beating, you know, 120 beats per minute for however many hours, and you're trying to sleep, but you can't. And you're going to be staring at the ceiling asking, why am I here? Reed, are you speaking from a personal experience? Yes, distinctly. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to know what your why is, because at those dark moments, that's when you're going to be able to draw from that well, from your deeper purpose. And if that why is owned entirely by someone else and not in a healthy way, you're not going to have something to draw from. So what do I mean by like an unhealthy way? Had a student basically whose parents said, you're going to go to officer training school, you're going to be an officer in the Air Force. That person's parent was a former officer and basically felt that that was the right thing for this member. It was not the right thing for that member. Member had a great job. They loved their job. They were good at their job. But because they were a good child to their parent, decided to say, you know, I'm going to do this I'm, because I trust my parent. I'm going to do this. Student was not successful. They were capable, but their heart wasn't in it, and you could tell. And that's painful to watch. It's hard to see someone with talent and abilities not being successful because you could clearly see that their heart wasn't in it. I'm not saying that you're motivation must be completely on you, right? I joined out of obligation to provide for my family. I felt keenly and still do that it's my responsibility to provide for the physical wants and needs for my family. So that's a pretty strong motivator. You know, you got three mouths to feed. That, that can be a strong motivator. But that, so that's what I mean by not reliant on someone in an unhealthy way. But I ultimately think that that well, that spring has to come from within. So how can you do this? Think about what you're considering doing and ask yourself why you're doing it. And then ask yourself why again. You know, the proverbial three-year-old toddler, you know, who's always asking why, why, why. 
at least do that five times. Say why at least five times. And by then you should get pretty close to the root cause of what's motivating you. And if that thing is worth bleeding, dying, and killing for, then you're probably in the right profession. You're probably in the right place. But if you do that exercise and you decide that that thing, that motivator, isn't worth bleeding, dying, and killing for, uh, you're going to have a hard time. So that's my last one. Figure out your why. Is it possible to succeed? Well, let's do stages. Is it possible to survive, pass, or thrive through OTS without that why? Yes, absolutely. But do I want to follow that person when they find that their why is not worthy of excellence in all they do, service before self, and integrity? That's the problem when I find people have less than ideal reasons. People are incredibly capable. They can survive and thrive in the worst circumstances for really long periods of time. You can do almost anything for two months, almost anything. But are you going to develop the characteristics, the aptitudes, the beliefs, the capacity to learn that we need from leaders if you're only there to collect a paycheck that's a little bit bigger than the one you were getting? If that's your only reason for being there, Probably not. Yes, you'll pin on those bars, but are the people around you going to give you their followership? They won't because they'll see right through it. And so thrive, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe I'll, I'll walk that one back, but you can certainly pass. Have you seen similar things? Have you found students that have a why that isn't quite there and seen how it impacts their ability to thrive? Oh, absolutely. So the interesting thing with ROTC is that we get these quite young, quite inexperienced and very immature in some cases, kids, frankly, freshmen that come into the program and either they, they don't have a why at all beyond just that they're curious. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Certainly nothing wrong with that. Or their why is so egregiously misplaced that it can't stand up to the, the fire and the flame, the storm that, that eventually comes when things get difficult. And so the attrition rate for our freshmen and uh, sophomores is incredibly high. It's on average around 50% will quit within the first year. That's, wow. Just for comparison, attrition rate at OTS is between 5 to 7%. And I think a lot of that might be attributed to the fact that everyone that comes through our programs already has their degree. And so they've probably had a lot more opportunity to find that why earlier in their life. They've matured and grown. And so the folks that I have overwhelmingly have defined their why and it's almost always in the right place very rarely did i have students that were there for the wrong reasons it's a pretty big contrast between the two programs yeah in fact just today i had a cadet come in and talk to me 
and it was just a, a regular normal semester counseling getting to know you, you know, an opportunity for me to get to know the cadet a little bit more and when I asked him what it was that he wanted to do for a career he said that he wants to be a special tactics or a combat rescue officer and I get those pretty frequently these young kids that just don't know enough about what that life is really like to know what it is that they're getting themselves into but I took the occasion to ask him why what is it about being a stow or a crow that is interesting to you and he was like I really want to be in combat I really want to go where the fight is and kill bad guys I'm like okay I mean that's it's not a bad why but I pressed him on it a little bit more and like kind of like your your five stages of why so why is that your why and he eventually dug down and uh, opened up a little bit about he's got these two sisters that that he's self-described as very protective of i'm like there there's your why use that until you find something that is better or that is more appropriate to become your why let your sisters let your family be your why protecting them from all the evil that that's out there whether you end up as a, a stow or a crow or not as you continue on in this process of becoming an officer let them be your why i hope he, he got it again he's a young kid straight out of high school joining air force rotc so we'll see how his development goes i I don't doubt that he could actually be a crow or a stow. He's he's strong. He's athletic. He's he's got he he looks the part, you know. But it'll be interesting to see as he continues in the program, if if he continues in the program. Remember that fifty percent. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how he progresses. What's your opinion of the most common, or perhaps the most the deepest and most significant why? I have a theory on, on what that is. The most common, I mean, without any scientific data or survey in front of me, just from anecdotal experience, I would say the most frequent why that I encounter with my cadets is wanting to be a part of something bigger than yourself, wanting to serve the, the higher cause. I think that is by far the most common why that I get for, for cadets coming into the program. I can, I can see that. I think that may get tested and tried during training, especially during field training when they're getting hollered at. I think it, it's my position and it's not, I'm not unique in this, that the only why that will really withstand the fires and flame, as you put it earlier, is love love for the person to your left and right love for the people you're protecting love for life. And I find that an interesting dichotomy in the business that we're employed in. The only thing ultimately that is worth fighting, killing and dying for is love, especially for that wingman to your right and left 
and and the people back home. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think to my own experience, having left the Air Force once before and doing it for very, I'll say personal, if not selfish reasons, you know, wanting to pursue my education and being upset with the Air Force and the way it was treating me and the, the way it was or the direction that it was trying to set my career. But then finding myself on the outside and missing intensely, like deep within me, missing my brothers and my sisters at arms, feeling like I had left my family, like I, like I was the prodigal son and I have this awakening to what I've done to myself, right? I find myself among the swine. <laughs> I'm like, I had it so good back in the Air Force. and I got to find a, a way to get there. And I will take any position that that the Air Force is willing to give me because I just want to be with those people because I love them. It's exactly that. You talk to people that are retired. Yes, they miss the flying and the cool uniforms and you name it. But the thing they miss the most are the relationships, the people. Yeah. And it just brings me back to our episode one, our discussion on what is an officer. Not that love for your people is unique to the officer, but it is certainly, at least in my estimation, a requirement to be successful to truly function as, as an effective officer for you to love your people. But there's that dichotomy again, because as an officer, you're placed in that position or there's the, the potential for you to be placed in that position where you have to make the tough call to, for lack of a, of a better term, to kill the thing that you love most. And that comes in a variety of forms that comes in literally right not just figuratively but actually ordering them something to that will require them to put their life in physical danger but there's also the disciplinary action that will have or could have significant career implications there's you know selecting only one person for that good job that award right there's all sorts of ways in which that is frequent in our job Good stuff, Reed. Man, that that was quite the stuck on an elevator speech. Yeah, that's a really long elevator ride. <laughs> if you're stuck on an elevator that long, you've got problems, right? That's a bad day. Uh, straight up, sleepless in Seattle, you know, stuck on an elevator with, with Tom Hanks. That's the kind of conversation that comes out of that. Well, thank you all for listening to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. Let us pontificate on the important things that we as officers or those who are interested in this career uh, have to deal with on a regular basis. These aspects of leadership, of professional development, growth and training, taking care of people, so many important topics that that we need to 
flesh out, discuss, learn, and become better at. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every day is an opportunity to learn. And so that's why we're doing this is to present everybody with that opportunity. Yeah. In five minute increments, you know, each five minute block is a opportunity for training. It's good. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast directory on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, iHeartRadio. You choose where you want to leave us that that rating or review and we will gladly accept it and potentially even incorporate your feedback into how we operate here. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us on our email, airforceofficerpodcast at gmail.com, or you can engage with us on the various social media platforms. We are active on Instagram at Air Force Officer Podcast and on Twitter at AF Officer Pod. And you can also join our discussion group about the podcast and various other topics dealing with Air Force officership, the application of air power, as well as the profession of arms. Our Facebook group is found through the Air Force Officer Podcast page. And all of these things will be included in the show notes as well. Anything you want to add there, Reed? Nope. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the U.S. government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.